Shabbos Lamed Chetamad Aleph in suspense, Shomeret Yabam, a person who's, who's held in suspense. And we're going to explore the, the, the strange moments of a Shomeret Yabam, a woman whose husband has died without children. She is now waiting, as we have in the Posuk, uh, this widow of the dead person shouldn't just become available to any stranger to marry. Uh, it's her for her Yavam, that's her brother-in-law, to establish her as his wife. Uh, and that's so, that's so during that moment, her husband has died. Uh, she's now unable to marry anybody else. But the Yavam, the Yavam has not yet married her. So she's in the state of suspense. And we're going to look at some of the subtle uh, the subtleties of the nature of the state of, of suspense, and particularly comparing it to another state of suspense, which is an arusa. So, so today we do the two parts of the marriage in this at the same time, first the irusin and then the nisuin under the chuppah. But in those days, those two pieces were separated by a year. During the time of the arusin, which is the betrothal, that means the husband has been mekadesh, the wife. He set her aside, but they're not yet living together. At that point, she can't live with anybody else. She's a suit to everybody else. And she's not yet permitted to her husband because there hasn't yet been the suin. So she's in the state of suspense. Likewise, a Yavama. The, the, her husband dies. The, the Yavam has not yet married her. She's forbidden to everybody else. And yet she's not yet with the Yavam. So she's in the state of suspense. So one would think that the Halachot would be similar. So how do you examine the difference between these states. This is just a typical piece of Torah thinking. If you're looking at two things, you're trying to, to compare them at a very subtle level. To compare the obvious is easy. But what we learn in a sugya like this is how to compare subtleties. And one of the things we use to compare the subtleties are the details of halakha that apply to each one. If they're the same, then the halachot should be the same. If they're different, then the halachot will be different. So from the halachot, we're able to work out the nature of the of the essential thing itself. And we use um, the two Mishnahs from Ketuvot, actually. One is repeated here in Yevomus Taflamet Chet, which is our Mishnah. So today we're focusing on Mishnah rather than on, on Gomorrah. Um, the first one that we have to know as an introduction to our Mishnah is the Mishnah at the beginning of the eighth parik of Ketuvot, where the, the Mishnah talks about Ha'isha Shinaflula Nechassim Ad Titares. In order to understand that strange moment of a rusin. I'm forbidden to everybody else, but I can't yet marry my husband. I can't yet live with my husband. During that state, she acquires property. Um, and the Tosfus Yom Tov says that the two people that we look at when we're learning Mishnah, the two primary uh, authorities on the Mishnah is the Rav and the Tosfus Yom Tov. Uh, the Rav is 15th century, was in Italy. We've spoken about him before. Um, and, and traveled to Yerushalayim uh, over a period of about 18 months during which he visited all the communities on the way from, from where he was in Italy through to Rome and, and, and North Africa and Cairo and eventually came to Israel and kept a meticulous journal about each of those communities which we still have today and then came to Yerushalayim and was the person who set up the Kehila in Yerushalayim. There wasn't a Kehila in Yerushalayim, it was a very, very small community. He set up the Kehila 
made it work, made it function with the proper shuls and sifrei Torah. They weren't even sifrei Torah. They weren't minyonim. It was, Yerushalayim was in a very sorry state. He got it going and set up a based in and a Hebrew Kedisha and schools and yeshivas. And it, he set it all up and then it was as if it was miraculous. It's a case of, of a makalif, of, of a... Uh, the Rabbani Shem sends the cure before the illness. And that's a principle, by the way, I use a lot of, with, with clients in, in business to understand if you're being faced with a challenge, you've already got the solution. You, you can know that the answer to your question is there already. The Rabbani Shem doesn't bring the problem before he's already brought the solution. And you can, you know, you've got to check with what you've got. You don't have to always make something new in order to solve it. And after the, at the time of the Rav, that's when the Gerus Farad was, after the expulsion from Spain, and a lot of Jews started coming to Yerushalayim, and they found a ready community that he had created there. And then Yerushalayim began to flourish as a, as a community. So the Rav, very important, wrote a parish on the Mishnah, which is like Rashi. Like Rashi on the Gomorrah, the Rav is on, on Mishnah, 15th century, so beginning of the time of the Achronim, the end of the Rishonim, is just at that period of time in between the Rishonim and the Achronim. A little bit later is the Tosvis Yom Tov. He's in the, in the 16th century and he was became a Dayan in Prague when he was 18. So you can get an idea of who he was. He was a Talmud of the Maharal of Prague uh, and, and led the community in Prague, later became the Rav of Prague. Um, and interestingly and quite importantly, he determined that the reason for the pogroms that resulted in shuls being destroyed was people talking in shul. Uh, that, that, that we destroy our shuls. It's not, it's not the, uh, the goyim who destroy the shuls. We destroy our shuls. We destroy a shul when you use it for something that it wasn't meant for, which is kedusha, and you're busy reading your cell phone, or you're busy talking, or you... Uh, whatever it is that you're doing that isn't connected with the shul, that we are destroying the shuls. And then it's just an empty shell. If it's just an empty shell, the Rebbe Nishim takes it away. He, he uh, taught that and, and, and felt that very, very strongly. Um, so he here, that the Tosvis Yontif says, this case of the woman getting property, we're talking about property she gets but through inheritance. So in that moment between she's, her betrothal and her marriage, she inherits property. Now the husband has certain rights in his wife's property. There are two different types of property, which are important to know. With no, There's nixay melug and nixay tzon barzel. Nixay tzon barzel means like iron sheep, an iron flock. Why is it called that? Because nixay tzon barzel when she leaves the marriage, either because her husband died or because there's a divorce, and she gets her property back, she brings property into the marriage, the husband manages the property. And the husband can use the profits and the, and the, and the, 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 the dividends from the property. But at the end, in the case of Nixet Son Barzel, she gets back the value of what she put in. If there had been a loss of principle, he has to make it up. If there's a gain in principle, then that's, that's her good fortune. He only has the, the dividends. Whereas in the case of Nixay Maluk, uh, if there's a, a change in the value, she, she gets back what, what is there. He doesn't have to make up differences. For our purposes, it doesn't matter a whole lot right now. We're talking about Nixay Maluk. Says, says the Tosfus Yom Tov, not, not, it doesn't have to be only that she got it through inheritance, it could be that she got it through a gift, or she found it, or she won a lottery, whatever the case was. She got this, this income, she got this asset while she was a, a, an Arusa. So now the question is, can she alienate that asset? Can she sell it? Can she give it away? Why? Yes, because it's hers. Why not? Because her husband already 
kind of has some rights in it. He can't do anything with it now, but he's going to marry her and then he will have the rights to it. So by her selling it, she is depriving him of a right to which he is entitled. And on that, there's a, there's a Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, and it says, Moedim Beit Shammai Beit Hillel, Shemocheret V'noteret V'kayam, that... Um, Sorry, this is Adshelotitaris. This is before she the Erusin. She might be engaged to the man, but she's not betrothed. But Naflula mission, it's Arsa. But if there's already been a betrothal, there's a Machloket Bet Shammai and Bet Hillel. Bet Shammai says she's allowed to sell, and Bet Hillel says no. Um, they both agree that if she did sell, the sale is valid. So what about when she's a Yavama? We would assume the same applies with, with Yibum. She's can't marry anybody else, so she's kind of betrothed to the Yabam, but the Yabam hasn't done anything yet, and she's not married to him yet. So our Mishnah says, What about if she's a Shomeret Yabam, and she inherited this property while she's a Shomeret Yabam? Her husband dies, therefore, let's say her husband dies, then her father dies, and she inherits from her father, and she, at this point, she's a, she's a Shomeret Yabam, the, the Yabam has not yet married her. Here, Beit Shammai Beit Hillel says, although in the case of an Arusa, there's a Machloket, and Beit Hillel says she may not sell it because she's depriving her future husband of the rights in that property. In the case of a Yavam, she may sell it because, we'll see why, because. Says the Rav, what is the Shinaflula and the Chasim Beit Avia Beodah Shomeret Yavam? While she's still a Shomeret Yavam, she inherits. What is the reason for that? So if you look down at the Tosfus Yomtev, the Tosfus Yomtev brings two reasons. The first one he brings is almost a verbatim quote from the Nemuke Yosef, um, the late Rishon from, from Spain that is written as a commentary on the, on the Rif. And and he says, Lefishe arusa knuya adshinit chayev haba ale askila. The relationship between, let's test the relationship between an arusa and her arus, a betrothed woman to her future husband. What is the nature of that relationship? So we can test it by what, she's not allowed to have relationships with anybody else. What happens if she does? It's skila, it's the most serious of all the four death sentences. So that's a serious, she is so connected to her husband that she's um, there would be skila if she if she if she were with somebody else so you see the husband has a big claim on her he's already involved in her life in a very big way but in the case of a shomeret yabam what happens if she has a relationship with somebody else there's no death sentence so her husband has died, the Yabam hasn't yet done Yibum, she has a relationship with an outsider, and she, she's over a love. She's over a love. She's over a love. That means she gets malkot, she gets stripes, uh, so to say, but what the important thing is, it's not, an, it's not a, it's, it's not skila, it's not a death sentence. And therefore, so you see, she's her own purpose, person. Yes, she still has to do Yibum or Chalitza with the brother-in-law, but at those moments, she's much more her own independent self than she is if she were an Arusa. That's what the Nemuke Yosef says. It's a little bit of a flawed reasoning that I have a bit of a problem with, because what is the, the sentence for a, an Eshet issue has a relationship? 
So her, what, what is hers? For her, it's Shreifa, which is one of the lower levels of, of, uh, of, of, of a death sentence. So, so you see, it's not, that's not a good way to measure the level of intimacy. And a married woman is certainly more intimate, is closer in a connection to her husband than an Arusa is to the Arus. Uh, and yet for the Arusa, the death sentence for certain reasons is more severe than it would be for, a, for an Eshet Ish. So, so I have a little bit of difficulty with an, an understanding in a Mekhi Yosef why the punishment determines the, the level of closeness. Uh, and maybe that's why the Tosfus Yomtev brings the Tosfus and why Tosfus th- reasons differently. Tosfus looks at it and says... It's not so much, don't measure it by the death sentences and the, or the, the punishments for, for contravention. Measure it from the nature of the connection. And Arusa, clearly the intention is marriage. Because how did she become an Arusa? He betrothed her. Why did he betroth her? Not to just leave her again. Yeah, it could happen that they break up that betrothal. But, but the intention is clearly marriage. The reason you get arisen is to get married. So she's kind of bought into the deal. He's, he said, I want to be invested in you. I want to get married to you. And she said, yes. So, so she's, her connection to him is, is a greater one. Even though she is, is in a stronger state of claim to the, the property than he is, nevertheless, uh, she shouldn't sell uh, her property according to both Beit Shammai and ba, uh, according to Beit Hillel. Aval b'shomeret yaban, kach omedet lechalitza kemo liyibum. But the nature of this relationship, so here we're getting more into the emotional connection of the yabam and the shomeret yabam. The nature says, the, says the, the toast was brought by the, by the toast was yomtiv. The nature is, she's waiting for him to make a decision. He could still say chalitza. By a, by a Rusin, there's no decision to be made. They've decided to get married. It's just a matter of timing. By Chalitza and Yibum, while she's a Shomerit Yabam, she's in suspense. He could say Chalitza. There's no commitment on his part yet. That's the difference. And therefore, both Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai agree, until he makes a decision, she's free to dispose of her property. She owns her property herself. He has no rights in the property. Even if his intention is to be Miyabim, he has no rights in the property. Which gives us to understand why Rashi says something, which I was wondering why he feels necessary to say this here. He explains the term Shomeret Yabam. What does Shomeret Yabam mean? And Rashi on our Mishnah says, Mamtenet umitzapali Yabam, she's waiting and looking forward. Mitzapah, she's looking forward to the Yabam, she's waiting and looking forward. And he says, and it's like a Gemorrah in Ksubis, Tafsamach Beis. There's, there's a story there where Rabbi Yehuda uh, Hanasi Rebbe marries his son off uh, and at the wedding, and it's decided that the son will go to Kolo for 12 years. So they get married, and after the wedding, the son goes off to, to learn for 12 years. Uh, and when he comes back, the wife is barren because she hasn't been with a man for 12 years and, they can't, and she can't get pregnant. And uh, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi says this is very serious because what do we do now? If he divorces her, well, let's look for, if he marries another one to have children with, they'll say that's crazy. He's got these two wives, one to have children with and one is his prostitute. It's not Kovadik. It's not a nice thing to do. So what else, what else can he do? Should he divorce her and marry somebody else? Then people will say, and this is the piece that Rashi quotes, This poor woman waited for nothing. 
And here Rashi brings in a heart-rending emotion about the Shomeret Yavam. Shomeret, she's waiting. That's what Shmira means. When you're protecting something, you're protecting it for a future event. You put away a bottle of wine and you keep it, you Shomer, for a future event. You put money away to buy a home. You protect it, it's for a future event. Shmira is to put something aside for a future event. So she's living towards a future event and the future event is in the hands of the Baal, is in the hands of, of the Yabam. That kind of suspension that she's called a Shomeret Yabam, that connects her. That gives her a level of connection, but not enough of a connection. It's not an Arusa because at the end of the day, why she's so in suspense is because he makes the decision. She's dependent on his decision. And one sees here a sensitivity. You see that deep emotion in this Rashi. One sees a sensitivity that there are situations, particularly with women, but not only with women, where somebody is waiting for you to make a decision and their future depends on your decision. Don't leave them waiting. Be empathetic. Understand what that's like to be held in suspense while you're busy taking your time, making up your mind. And whether it's about a decision, sometimes a decision of employment. Are you going to keep somebody or are you going to fire somebody? Are you going to employ somebody or are you not going to employ them? They're sitting there waiting. Uh, and sometimes you've got people, you've got managers who will go off on vacations. I'll tell you when I get back. We'll decide when I get back. Very nice. You're going off to vacation. You've got your head clear. You'll decide when you get back. But what about the person waiting for the answer? And that idea of a Shomerit Yabam, we need to understand what it's like what that, and empathize with that condition of being dependent on a decision which somebody else is going to make about your future life. And to, to just be aware of what that is. And at least in that time, from a halachic perspective, the halacha preserves her independence and makes it very clear. Until you've made up your mind, she's an independent woman.